Hello, and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. It is Nick Zararis, and today we are going to be drifting over to the association of Mr. Adam Silver. Talk a little basketball. I would normally have either LeVance or Trevor here to discuss basketball, but both were a little bit busy, so I went and did a little bit of work. I did some reading, did a little more prep than I usually would because, you know, I've been watching more hockey than basketball. I do catch most of the TNT Tuesday-Thursday games, and I'll catch the primetime ABC game on the weekend. But week to week, night to night during the week, I'm usually watching hockey, and on occasion, if there's a particularly good weeknight game in the association, I will throw it on. So I've got a nice little handy-dandy note sheet of storylines and things I want to talk about. But before I get to the fun part of the show, got to take care of the business, man. I do this out of love, but at the same time, we are trying to build up that portfolio of work, covering a wide range of topics. So... If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please hit the subscribe button. If you're on Apple Podcasts, scroll down on the page that has every single episode of the show all the way to the bottom. There's going to be five clear stars. Count over left to right the fifth star. Hit that number five star. Leave a written review, please. That would be nice as well. I would appreciate that. If you're on Spotify listening to this, hit the little follow button. If you're on SoundCloud listening to this, follow the channel. If you're on Google Play, Audio Boom, Stitcher Radio, any of those other platforms, hit the little follow button, please. That that helps grow the show, moves it up charts. The higher it goes up charts, the more likely other people are to find it. And that is our end goal here. We are trying to organically grow the show through the power of just sheer sports fandom. Uh, I've been saying it to... Everyone who's talked to me about putting this show together, what it takes to run it, I love doing this. I love talking about sports. There is nothing more satisfying, satisfying, enjoyable as a fan to just sit here and unpack what is going on on the court, on the ice, on the field, whatever we're talking about, and think about it from my perspective and then try and put it into the mindset of, of, well, if I were this person in charge of this, how would I manage this situation and do this or do that? Or would I pursue this? Really fun. And it's why the show is called The Upper Bowl GM. It's why I sit up in the cheap seats, whether it's at a Ranger game, a Giant game, a Nick game, a Met game, a soccer match, wherever I am. A lot of the time I'm thinking to myself, they can't do any better than this. What, what am I missing here? Do I not see something? And it's what is going to make this NBA episode particularly interesting is I've checked in on all of the teams I'm going to talk about today at various points during their season. I haven't watched every single one of their games, but I've checked in. I've kept an eye on it. I'm aware of things that are happening around the league. And it'll be fun. It won't be a particularly long episode. I will see you guys on the other side of the drop. Who's got the three? Here's Embiid posting up. He's got Bogdanovich thinking about a three. There it is. Yes! Wow! And with that, I'm just going to get on into it. So the first thing I have written down here is something that's not specifically a storyline within the NBA. It's something I was thinking about and I was talking about with a couple of my friends the other day. Is The NBA is 
probably the most narrative-driven league we have, in at least in the United States. The culture, the hot take culture, the discourse that uh, that consumes sports online here in the United States, it's permeating into other fields. I, I've noticed it a little bit more in soccer discourse. It's starting to resemble the way so- uh, basketball discourse is in the States. So even from non-Americans who are talking about soccer, the discourse is resembling that. And there's something about the NBA. I, I think there are a few reasons why, and it's probably not just limited to these reasons, but the NBA is so much fun to talk about because we see it all of the time. The things we like pose as like hypotheticals or strategies, like, if I were Deshaun Watson, I wouldn't want to play. I'd make them trade me. You know where Deshaun Watson got that idea and where that this line of thinking as both fans and experts who talk about people in sports comes from the NBA. The NBA having players in charge of the league to some degree. They control where they take their talents. They demand trades and they get facilitated now. There aren't players who ask for a trade and then, you know, mope around. Yeah, James Harden showed up a little bit out of shape and moped around for a week and a half, but the Rockets traded him. There wasn't any hesitation. And I think that fantasy, the fantasy manager aspect is part of this, that basketball is so enjoyable for uh, even me as, like I won't say a casual fan because I do watch quite a bit, but for just sports fans in general, the way we wish there was more movement in football and baseball and hockey the NBA facilitates that. Superstars, legitimate best player in the world players are on the move, not every single year, but pretty darn close to it. And a sports culture where fantasy football in particular is so prevalent, where even people who aren't like diehard football fans, they have fantasy teams because it's a way to bond with your friends, people at work, that kind of thing. And the NBA most closely resembles what we think of in fantasy sports, where you can have someone with James Harden in a fantasy league be like, uh, all right, I, I would trade James Harden if you sent me the right offer. And that feeds into the discourse. It makes it a lot easier to talk about because there's always something in the news. There's always a player who wants to go somewhere else. There's always a team shopping someone to try and either improve their team right now or overhaul and start a long-term rebuild. We see it a lot in the NBA where long-term, genuine, four- or five-year rebuilds are pretty common for teams that aren't in the market for the services of a true superstar like a LeBron James in free agency, where a team like the Knicks will have to spend four or five years toiling in the lottery, hoping one of the guys they draft manages to be good enough to eventually trade for either a bona fide superstar or to be a building block to draw other possible free agents to the team. And that discourse feeds into it in a number of ways. Yes, the NBA having ESPN as a television partner is kind of icky. The whole point of ESPN is that it's supposed to be a news organization that reports on the league and it can't objectively report on a subject because they have a mutual financial interest with the league. But... For our purposes of this discussion, the NBA is the NBA and the NFL are right there, one two in terms of talkability and the subject matter for 
what's talked about on ESPN's airwaves all the time, but the NBA just, it brings something out, man. I mean, I at this point, the LeBron-Michael Jordan discussion has been beaten into a bloody, unrecognizable pulp, and at this point, if people are still debating it on TV, there just wasn't anything else to talk about on that particular day. The producer was putting together the rundown for the show, but there's just something innate about the ability to debate basketball because there aren't the underlying metrics, the advanced statistics that we have in baseball, that we have in hockey, and now that we have in football to the same degree where we can find out as much because just the way basketball is played because there are so many individual events during the course of a game. I mean, tracking information to put together statistical models, I mean, you're basing it on how many field goal attempts in a game nowadays, where teams are going to have 130 points. You know how many field goals it takes to score 130 points? Every single one of those shots has to be recorded as an event, and that's how you form your statistical models. Every single shot in a hockey game is manageable. Every single snap in a football game, every passing attempt, those are manageable. In a baseball game, every pitch is trackable. Yeah, there's a lot of them, but it's a little more trackable than what it would be in basketball. And it's part of the problem in why some of the basketball underlying statistics, like like VORP, they aren't telling you the whole story because they have holes in them. They, they don't account for everything, and they overvalue certain things, which is a part of the discussion that we in the advanced statistics analytics community have to deal with and unpack is even though these stats are telling us more than conventional counting stats, how much are they actually telling us that's reflective of what we're actually seeing? Because I know it from seeing hockey, baseball, and football advanced stats. Some people can be extremely efficient and good at one thing, but you have to put that efficiency into the context of the game situation as well. Is this a favorable situation for them to be doing what they're doing? I know I know, we see it a lot in football that it's very easy to be an efficient passer when you're playing from behind because the defense is sagging off of you. And basketball advanced statistics have a little bit of a ways to go. And it's part of why the discourse is still fluid because in baseball, in football, and in hockey, there is just a number for most things to quantify and understand. In basketball, there isn't. And when there is no like clear-cut one number you can spit out to tell you an answer to a question, you can just have a debate. And there isn't inherently a right answer in a debate because if people both sides are debating in good faith and not making sh- straw man arguments, you can have a reasonable discussion about it. And it's why basketball lends itself to that. Uh, the NBA itself, part of why the NBA itself thrives in a discourse is it doesn't take itself too seriously. The people who do discourse genuinely, like what they do on Inside the NBA and what ESPN does to a little bit of a lesser extent on the jump, there's genuine debate and it's not as numbers obsessed. And I understand that as someone like me who loves advanced statistics and likes understanding the micro events that go into cre- calculating whether or not someone is good. I understand that for a large sect of the general public who watches sports, they don't care about that. They just want to watch the game and enjoy themselves. Basketball allows that to happen. Now that I've had my one abstract big picture, not specific to any given player or team thing I've covered today, 
I do want to talk about a few teams specifically that I found pretty interesting and I read some good stuff about over the last couple days while I was prepping to do this episode. The first team I want to talk about is the 76ers, who are in first place in the East. Yes, it's only by half a game over the Brooklyn Nets, but for a number of years now, we've been waiting for either the front office to trade one of Embiid or Simmons for another superstar, or them to break through their glass ceiling. They've had a few opportunities. They went to a conference finals against the Raptors. They very well could have made the finals that year. They've had a team good enough to beat the opponents they've matched up with the last few years in playoff series. And just, it wasn't in the cards for them. I, I know I often talk about it on the show here, but it takes a lot go to go right to win a championship in these sports where it takes four or five rounds to win it. Yeah, the Celtics and Lakers won all those titles back in the day in black and white, but you know, there weren't three rounds of the playoffs before you got to the finals back then, so it's a little bit more manageable. But big picture, the state of the 76ers is as compelling of any non-LeBron team I can remember that's not the Warriors. Uh, granted, those are two different uh, qualifiers for that statement, but I think the Sixers team is very interesting because they still have the conventional big man in Embiid, not like some, most of the teams we've seen win titles recently where they have a big man who's more of a stretch guy who's going to take a player out to the wing or have them out on the low block in the mid-range game like Anthony Davis. Joe Embiid is a legitimate old-school center. Yeah, he does take those two or three threes a game, which you don't want him to do because he doesn't shoot them particularly well, but Embiid is an old-school center, and he's so fun to watch. His ball handling is an issue. He does turn the ball over quite a bit for someone as talented as he is. I, I know I read in something today, I think it was on the ringer, that his assist-to-turnover ratio is, is like 1.2 assists to one turnover, which is pretty awful, big picture-wise, when you're talking about efficiency. But they've got Embiid going well. They went and got Seth Curry, Seth, S-E-T-H, Steph's younger brother, who's shooting 45% from three. They've gotten pretty solid play out of Tobias Harris, who's someone who played for Doc Rivers when Tobias Harris was in L.A., Doc is a interesting case study. He's someone who's been a victim and someone who's thrived in this narrative game. I know based off of how things ended with the Clippers last year in the bubble, there was a lot of, well, yeah, he won a title with the Celtics Big 3 in 2008, but other than that, what's he really done? He hasn't made a ton of conference finals. He never really got that far with the Clippers. In either iteration, either the one with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard or the one with Lob City with DeAndre Jordan, Chris Paul, and Blake Griffin. But right now, I don't want to say the East is up for grabs because there are two or three teams significantly better than everyone else. And I don't know how the Sixers are going to match up with the Nets in a hypothetical playoff series. Yes, Embiid will probably torch, eat, probably go for 30 and 15 every single game in that series. But even it, it, it's a matter of who you would put Ben Simmons, Philly's best perimeter defender, on. And Simmons, for all of his flaws as a shooter, he's still yet to figure out his shooting stroke at this point in the league. Uh, 
he's fine finishing at the rim and as a perimeter defender. He's got a decent outside shot of winning Defensive Player of the Year, which as a perimeter player is pretty difficult. Typically that award is for big men who record blocks, that kind of thing. But the Sixers are an interesting team in the sense that we've seen them try this iteration quite a bit. They had a team with shooters around Embiid and Simmons before. They've tried it a number of times with Brett Brown, who got canned, and then they brought in Doc, and a lot of the NBA is wait and see, because the playoffs are so different from the regular season, the style of play in particular, and the NBA, people actually play defense in the playoffs, where it's going to be difficult for teams that aren't good at defense to be able to keep themselves in games. I, I know that the old head talking point of, well, they got to play defense if they want it more. And the regular season, is seven, there's 72 games this year, 82 games in a regular season. If you play, you know, 75 of those games, you get a couple of maintenance days, you nick something here and there, you're looking at, you know, 90-ish games to winning title by the end of the finals if you miss a couple of games in the regular season. That's a lot, a lot of wear and tear on your body. And that's why some teams, particularly the veteran heavy teams, they take it easy in the regular season. They're not going to go balls to the walls on a random Tuesday night against the Hawks in Atlanta on the road. And that's okay. That's part of the state of the NBA now where these guys know their bodies very well. And yes, some of it is pseudoscience with how they feel as opposed to how they are physically. But... If it works for a player giving them a night off here and there and not playing back-to-backs, it's good bench management because, yeah, you would like to have home court throughout the course of the playoffs, but at the same time, I'd rather all my guys be 100% in those playoffs and have to win a game on the road. I will say the thing I like the most about the NBA from a team-building perspective is that the general managers are unafraid. They are going to make things happen because their windows of opportunity are so small because the attitudes of players can change at a moment's notice. It could literally be a, a random thing that sets off a trade situation, whether it's something like James Harden, who realized the, the Rockets window was done, I want to go play with my friends in Brooklyn, whether it's something like Paul George being like, I'll come to the Clippers because I want to play with Kawhi and the Clippers have to facilitate that, that kind of thing. Anything can happen in the NBA and roster construction. And yes, the Clippers trading for Steph Curry, that qualifies. Making a small upgrade to get a little bit better as a support character, that helps. And when we talk about teams in other sports, you see a lot more of a sense of wanting to run it back with the exact same thing. Think about the Packers. Packers went to the NFC title game in 2020 and lost to the 49ers and basically made no concrete changes to their starting lineup, offense or defense. And they lost again in the NFC title game. They, they met their ceiling because there was an unwillingness to get experimental and try something. And the last thing I want to talk about in regards to the Sixers is, I know I've seen it in a few different places. Are the Raptors going to try and shop Kyle Lowry? Lowry's in his mid-30s now, which is crazy. He's pretty old now. He's from Philly. He went to Villanova. The Sixers need another ball handler. It would probably cost a decent bit on the trade market. The Sixers don't have a ton of assets to make something happen. 
They could look at J.J. Redick, maybe, from the Pelicans, as an extra shooter as opposed to a ball handler. I do know the Sixers need an additional ball handler. They do turn the ball over quite a bit, and that is a problem when you get into the playoffs against some of these opponents who are going to be able to control the ball a little bit better on you, and you're going to have to stop them. You've got to be able to limit the chances the other team can make. You add Lowry to that Sixers lineup, which is already pretty good. You give them another ball handler, someone who can score some points if need be. And you got a really good starting five. I mean, in crunch time at the end of a game, if you're rolling out there with Lowry, Seth Curry, Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, and Embiid, that's a nice mix. You got some perimeter defenders. You got Embiid to lock down the paint. You got some shooters, and you got Lowry, and yeah, Embiid's not great on the pick and roll, but if need be, him and Lowry on the pick and roll would be pretty effective. I'd like to see the Sixers go for it, man. They've had a pretty good team for a few years now. Get over that hump. Beat the Celtics in a playoff series. Beat the Heat in a playoff series. Beat the Bucks in a playoff series. Get to the finals. The, the Sixers have been in this process of acquiring players to make a deep run for years now. They've been trusting the process forever. They they got Embiid and the Simmons in the draft. They've gone and surrounded them with different types of players. They need shooters. They could use a real another point guard. It would help. And while I was recording this episode, the Sixers did pull out and win in overtime against the Utah Jazz. Donovan Mitchell got ejected. I've been watching that on one of the TVs in my room, but I was mostly looking at my laptop here. Make sure my audio levels sound okay, that kind of thing. But nice game from the Sixers against the Jazz, who at the moment still had the best record in the league. But the Nets are probably going to catch them. And we're going to get to the Nets in a few seconds, but I do want to talk a little bit about the Lakers real quick. I had LeVance on last week to talk about Manchester United, his beloved soccer club, but LeVance's favorite team, the Lakers, they're, you know, they're not in a holding pattern because it, the regular season doesn't really matter to them, I'll be honest with you. They're going to be fine with being the 4 or 5 seed. They can win road games. I mean, if you got a hypothetical Lakers-Clippers round one series, that would be more of a home game for the Lakers anyway, but... I think the Lakers will end up being fine. It really just depends on how healthy Anthony Davis is. I know LeBron got the night off on Wednesday as I'm recording this. They are still without Anthony Davis, who has a calf injury. Those soft tissue injuries are difficult. They don't always heal amazingly well, and it's a matter of how the player feels. It's not an exact science. It doesn't always heal the same way for everyone. I know Anthony Davis did some light workouts the other day where he was just basically taking jump shots, and that was really it, just kind of seeing how it felt to land on his leg, that kind of thing. He still got a number of weeks to go. I know I saw reports earlier this week, like Monday or Tuesday, that Davis was still at least a month away from returning to action, and the Lakers are going to need to step it up a little bit here. They can't be falling into that 6-7 seed territory because then you end up having to play the play-in games, which I'm going to talk about for a brief second towards the end of the episode, where the 7 seed has to play the 8 seed, the 9 seed has to play the 10 seed, and there's four teams playing in for those last two spots. You don't want to be that in that situation as the Lakers. You've got a pretty veteran team. You don't need those extra miles of a play-in series, two play-in games to get there. But Without Anthony Davis, the Lakers do have issues. They are missing 25 to 30-ish points of production in their offense every single night. And while I like Dennis Schroeder, he can pick some of the load. He's been out the last few weeks as well. 
He's should be back pretty soon, close to the end of the All-Star break, which is this weekend, even though not a lot of people realize the NBA is having an All-Star game this weekend because they probably shouldn't in this pandemic environment. I know I just threw a lot at you. Circling back, we're talking about the state of the Lakers. They will be fine. It's just a matter of getting there. They need to get LeBron as healthy as possible, give the man extra rest here and there, win the games you should win. Everyone understands you're missing Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis, when he's healthy, is a top 5, 10 player in the NBA. So, win the games you should. Beat the bad teams. Look decent against the good teams. Hang around. That's really all we're asking for. We want to see the Lakers in the finals because the Lakers are probably the best team in the West, and it would be fun to see LeBron go up against either Embiid or KD or Giannis from a storyline perspective because, you know, we like to talk about legacy in the NBA because we love talking about legacy. As far as the Lakers, I'm not really that concerned. I, I, I'll put it like this. I checked in with the three Laker fans I know, and none of them are nervous. So I will take them, I will take their feelings into my opinion, and I will ride with them. I believe that they they know what they're talking about, because they're watching every single game, and they're as worried about the Lakers as people on the act, Lakers actually are. And that's why I love talking to people who are fans of other teams, is they're the only person who understands the psychosis of it, who are thinking up at night about bad decisions that were made in the course of another game. So, Lakers was quick. That was only like two, three minutes. But storyline-wise, I don't think there's a more compelling team in the entire league than the Brooklyn Nets. It's pretty obvious. I mean, when you're talking about a team that features three certifiable MVP-level players, Durant, who looks just as good as he did a couple years ago, he's out right now, has a hamstring. He's fine. They're not pushing it. They've been giving their guys extra nights off here and there to, you know, be ready for the playoffs. Durant's coming off an Achilles. Kyrie's missed games here and there. He missed a couple of games towards the beginning of the season because he needed some personal time away from the team. Then he had to endure the COVID protocols to getting back into being around the team to be able to practice, that kind of thing. But big picture, the Nets are as fascinating a team as we've seen in recent memory in the NBA, because you have such compelling personalities, volatile personalities. We know Kevin Durant can kind of be prickly online if people are calling him out. He takes it personally. It's part of why he's gone to Golden State and now why he's in Brooklyn is he's tired of people telling him his rings didn't matter or he couldn't win without a player X or Y. He wants to win a title and people to give him the respect he feels he deserves. We know Kyrie beats to the, the sound of his own drum, and that's okay. He's allowed to be different. He's allowed to question the status quo. He's allowed to challenge authority. Those are all good things, inherently. But, again, like I said on the show with LeVance the second week of the season, just let people know what you're dealing with, man. People will empathize with you if you explain yourself to them. I, I know that... In, you shouldn't have to explain yourself if you're dealing with some kind of emotional stress or psychological stress, but it helps people understand you better when you explain what you're doing. And even if you're just like, I need to be away from the team for a week or so because I'm not feeling particularly well, I'm really worried about this, I'm missing that, 
that kind of thing, okay, people will be willing to empathize with you. But when you do the radio silence, when you be difficult with the media, you're just giving them an invitation to to scrutinize you, even though you don't deserve to be scrutinized. And it's one of the things I wish wasn't the case. I wish guys could just say, I need some time away from the team right now. I'll be back soon, but I need some time to deal with this family situation, this problem, that problem, that kind of thing. And I think it would go over better with a lot of the media who give Kyrie a hard time for the way he acts sometimes. If you make the media out to be the bad guy, you, you can win a lot of people over because there's an inherent distrust of the media in the United States and in a lot of countries, but particularly in the United States. And I'm not saying to play that up, but if you are saying, I'm dealing with a family emergency, I'm having a mental health crisis where I'm extremely stressed out about this, I need time away from the team, and if a media crucifies you for that, a media member crucifies you for that, they're the asshole. You get the sympathy. You look well. That kind of thing. That's what I'll say about Kyrie, but I'm very excited to see the Nets in a playoff situation, especially against a team with a true big man, because the Nets don't have a good defender that's a big man. They're going to throw DeAndre Jordan out there at center and hope for the best against Giannis, against Embiid, whoever they happen to play in the first round of the playoffs, that kind of thing. It's going to be interesting to see. I, I know, I for, I think it was Nick Wright, the Fox Sports analyst, who said something like Embiid is going to go for 30 and 20 every single game against the Nets in a playoff series. He tweeted that after the uh, Sixers had beaten the Jazz tonight on Wednesday night when I'm recording this. But I do think the Nets can outscore everyone else we've seen. They don't really care about defense. They've given up 130, 125 points with regularity to this point in the season. That's fine. Like I've said, defense is an effort thing, and in the regular season, it doesn't particularly matter, especially when you're the Nets who are just capable of scoring so many points that it doesn't even matter how bad your defense is. Yes, winning playoff games 140 to 135 probably isn't doable against the better teams in the league. But if any team could do it, it'd be these Nets. I do think the whole Steve Nash at the coach thing might be an issue in the playoffs when he has to make adjustments. They have to come up with half-court sets, those kind of things, where it can't just be iso ball. I will say that they've gotten good play out of James Harden since he got there. He's facilitating a lot more. He's not as ball dominant. His usage rate isn't as high as it was in Houston. And of course it's not. And Houston Harden was touching the ball every single play. He was extendedly in isolation more the last two years where the te his teammates were clearing out for him so he could either try and drive to the paint or he could take shots and try and draw fouls. The foul shots are a key part of Harden's game. He needs to accumulate points taking those foul shots. As of the moment, the Nets are the betting favorite to win the NBA title. Wouldn't surprise me one bit if they did end up winning the title. I hope we get some version of a Nets, Lakers, Sixers, and then either Utah or Phoenix Final Four as the two conference finals. That would be a lot of fun. I, I think that's the thing I like the most about the NBA is that the variety in the matchups is so much fun because of the different styles of play that these teams have when they play each other. And that would be an awesome Final Four combination. And we'll get some good first and second round series against the lesser quality teams who are still playoff teams. And those are the fun ones when you get something like uh, Clippers, 
a Clippers Sun series could be a lot of fun if the Clippers slide a little bit more. Like a two seven Clippers, the Clippers probably won't be bad enough to fall to the seven seed. But I mean, I'm looking at the standings right now, and you gave us like a Portland Clippers series that could be a lot of fun. Portland and the Clippers, or you go over to the East, you get a Heat Celtics series in the first round. That has potential. Uh, I'm looking forward to the NBA playoffs. Is what I'll say. We're almost in the sweet spot of the sports calendar where you're talking about the NBA and NHL playoffs at the same time, the NFL draft buildup gets to a fever pitch, and then baseball comes back. It's a great time to be a sports fan. And I'm almost done with this episode today. I do want to talk a little bit about the Jazz and then the Rockets, because those are both relevant storylines. I know I mentioned earlier that the Jazz lost to the Sixers in overtime, but... Yes, this happens every couple of years where a team has a really, really good regular season, even though they're not well-suited for a playoff series. I mean, the Hawks won something like 60 games five, six years ago. Their entire team won NBA Player of the Month in October. They went on a crazy winning streak. The Jazz just hit their threes, and they get rebounds, man. Make all the fun you want about Rudy Gobert for being French and for being the first person in the NBA to get COVID, but... They win in the regular season. No, I don't think the Jazz will beat the Lakers if the Lakers are fully healthy. I think the Jazz... You saw the problems with the Jazz tonight. Donovan Mitchell could not get anything going. He didn't score a single point in overtime. He got himself ejected for arguing with an official. wasn't great. It was not great from the Jazz tonight. And yeah, that was a little bit of higher register, but... We, we we see this happen quite a bit in the regular season in the NBA where a team just rolls through because they're playing hard, they're playing efficient, they play decent defense, and they're hitting their shots. I don't think Utah's a serious threat to make the Final Four. I don't think they could beat a healthy Lakers team in a playoff series. But we'll see. We'll see. Lastly, before I wrap up and talk about tomorrow's episode, I do briefly want to touch back on James Harden's former team, the Houston Rockets, who have lost 14 in a row, 13 in a row, something like that. They are quite clearly embarking on this rebuild. They've got assets. They got stuff for Harden from the Nets and from the Cavs in that three-team trade. They probably should be looking to shop Victor Oladipo to get additional assets going forward, because they're starting from scratch, more or less. And I think Silas, who was the Mavericks assistance coach last year, is a decent coach. He got really good results out of that Mavericks team, a team that has not played as well this year. They are not shooting the ball as well, and their defense has struggled as well. So, yes, the Mavericks are a more talented team, and it was easier for him to get results with them, but it is worth mentioning that the Rockets are, for all intents and purposes, a dumpster fire right now. And that's by design. They will trade Oladipo. At least if they were smart, they would trade Oladipo and get more draft picks because they're back to square one. They don't have a superstar, and they don't really have anything to show for this era of Rockets basketball, and that's a shame because the Rockets came as close to anyone, I think, of beating those Warriors teams where if the Rockets just could have hit some threes, man, they would have managed to, they could have beat the Warriors, is what I will say. At not, I don't know about at the height of their powers, but the year the Warriors lost in the finals to the Raptors, I think the Rockets could have won the title that year. It's just that Chris Paul could never stay healthy. They could never 
yet Harding going enough because they don't give out fouls as easily in the postseason as they do in the regular season. And Harden's high usage rate made it difficult because teams would just double-team him, force him to take bad shots, that kind of thing. And playing a certain style of basketball all season for 82 games and then a first-round series, you get habits. And it's really hard to break those habits and entirely change your style of play in a playoff series against a team that's playing better than you. It, It really is one of the things that's interesting about basketball is that because the season is so long, and because certain players are so used to playing a certain way, when the competition gets tougher, they have a harder time adapting, because that play style, which works in the regular season like Harden's does, where he scores so many points, where he draws so many fouls, it doesn't work in the playoffs. We have not seen that type of high-volume isolation player lead a team to a title since this true three-point revolution began back 2014-2015 when the Splash Brothers played Thompson and Steph Curry, really started changing the way basketball was played by just the sheer volume of three-pointers they made. It helps that they're, you know, like the best shooting backcourt of all time. But, again, we're talking about the Rockets here. They came damn close. And I know Daryl Morey gets it in pretty much every direction from basketball Twitter about doing the corny things of commissioning the report saying that the Rockets should have beaten the Warriors based on the number of simulations ran for taking small ball way too far and playing P.J. Tucker at center when they traded away Clint Capella last year. I get why people dislike the Rockets, especially by my, by my boy Fitz, who's been on the show a few times, who's talked about the Warriors and the Rangers on here, why he clowns the Rockets, because at the end of the day, they didn't account for the human factor, that part of basketball. And it's tough because you don't want to see creative people lose their jobs because that makes other general managers, other executives less inclined to take risks and be ballsy with their roster construction. I don't think there's a universe in which P.J. Tucker being your center works all the way to an NBA title because of the teams you would have to go through to get there. But I commend Daryl Morey for giving it a chance, for trying something outside the box and not just falling back on conventional wisdom. The Rockets are now back in square one of basketball purgatory. They have to either draft a star or acquire enough prospects and draft picks that they could trade for a star. They are back at square one. And I like Victor Oladipo. I think he's pretty good. But by the time you can put a competitive roster around Victor Oladipo, he'll be too old to be the premier player you would need him to be in the roster you would build around him. So Rockets probably trade Oladipo. It probably won't be till the summer. It's kind of be difficult to make a trade happen right now because the two-week cool-off you'd have where they'd have to clear the COVID, he'd have to clear the COVID protocols to go around the new team, practice, get into game shape, get up to game speed with his new team. When you've been just going through the motions for as much as Houston has, it's taxing on players, even good ones like Oladipo, who are still trying, that kind of thing. I want to say the NBA is in a good place because of this, that the players are in control of their futures and it makes teams more inclined to go for it and not be patient and not wait for everything to be absolutely perfect to make a championship run. Miami came close last year, and we see where Miami is now. Miami is in 
seventh place in the East, eighth place in the East, something like that. They're six games back of the number one seed. Miami could round into form, but last year might have been their one year in their window. That that really might have been it. We saw for the Raptors, they won the title in their one year of their window. Windows close and open in the NBA very quickly. I am very happy that the Knicks are playing respectable basketball. I don't know how sustainable a team based on defense and shooting is long term. They definitely need R.J. Barrett to continue to develop, and they need Emmanuel quickly to not just be a one-year flash in the pan. We need that magic floater to carry the team all the way to a championship, a playoff appearance. I'll be content if the Knicks make the playoffs this year. That's what I'll say. That is the note I will end the episode on. I would just like the Knicks to make the playoffs this year. And not in the playing round. I'd like them to make one through six, be one of the first six seeds so they don't have to play in the 7-8 or the 9-10 game. And with all of that said, I will get you guys out of here. Rangers blog should be going up tomorrow. I submitted it this afternoon. It's pretty long. It's pretty in-depth. It's about the style of play the Rangers are pursuing. It will be on Gotham Sports Network if you're not already following the blog on Twitter. At, G- at GothamSN on Twitter. Please bookmark the website. I know that's a very old person thing to say, but bookmark the website. Please. You'll see my new Ranger stuff. I might try and set up a sub stack for my written content to put it all into one place so people can get it a little bit easier, that kind of thing. I got to get my content book going. I know there's more opportunities, more things I have to say, to visualize, to create as a content creator. We're working on it. We're getting there. Tomorrow's episode will be very fun. Going to talk baseball with Chris Schweitzer. Bring trainings on, man. Enjoy a day baseball game while you're pretending to work from home. I'll see you guys tomorrow with Chris.